0: Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will come he, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit it will It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, "You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased." Immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make... I will make you become fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who also were in the boat mending their nets. And immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Then they went to Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching. And he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever, and they told him about her at once. And so he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and immediately the fever left her and she served them Mm -hmm. at evening when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon possessed and the whole city was gathered together at the door. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he and he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and. Departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. When they found him, they said to him, Everyone is looking for you. But he said to them, Let us go into the next towns, that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogue throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And he strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. However, he went out and began to proclaim it freely, and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places. And they came to Him from every direction. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We're so grateful to be able to look at the Lord Jesus's life again from a different perspective. We're grateful, God, that You provided these different... Uh, Accounts, Lord. And so we yield our hearts to you. Whatever you want to speak to us about, Lord, your servants are listening. Help us, Father, to just be listening for what we can obey, not necessarily only what we agree with, Lord. We pray that you'd break through any self deception that's in this room. We pray, Lord, that your word would pierce through the deepest parts of anything that we've put up against you to defend ourselves against your conviction by your Holy Spirit. And we pray you'd make us fruitful for you, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Mark is also known as John Mark. He was a younger man. Um, He was not one of the original 12 apostles. Uh, He was younger than them. Um, And he was not an eyewitness like they were to Jesus' life and ministry. It's possible that he wasn't a witness to very much at all. But he did have a very close relationship with someone who did, and that is the Apostle Peter. In fact, Peter refers to Mark as his son in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. The early church fathers are unanimous related to Mark's uh, involvement with the Apostle Peter, that the Apostle Peter was kind of his mentor, and so all the way back to AD 140. The church fathers even quote the apostle John as describing that Mark was a disciple and a uh, kind of a interpreter of Peter, and so he was a, he was very involved in the early church. We're also told that his mother was named Mary, and that at her house was the house where they were praying. When Rhoda, don't get me started on sitcoms, but when Rhoda, you know, heard the knock at the door after the Lord Jesus broke her broke him peter away out of jail a jailbreak and then he went knocked on the door and so forth that was at uh, john mark's mother's home there mark was also a nephew or cousin of barnabas and during paul's first missionary journey with barnabas at some point in kind of in the early stages he left them he deserted them and that didn't rub the apostle paul the right way at all, so much so that the second, when they were getting ready to go on the second missionary journey, Barnabas wanted to take Mark, and he said no. And in fact, it caused such a uh, disagreement that they ended up parting ways. And Paul went with Silas, and Barnabas went with um, Mark. And and so there was this kind of dynamic or you know in a situation that happened. But at the end of um, Paul's life, he's writing from prison to Timothy, and we're, we're told there in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that Paul asks Timothy to bring Mark with him because he says he said quote he is useful to me for ministry so God used Mark's shortcoming in Mark's life and and he ended up using that for his purposes so that it made him even more faithful and that's encouraging to us because we fail all the time and we fall short and God isn't limited to our failings because he's gracious and He's loving, and He takes our failures and He uses them for His purposes as we learn those lessons. Very important. So this this structure here that we see in this book is a little bit different than what we saw in the Gospel of Matthew. Mark emphasizes Jesus as the suffering servant Of the Lord, and he focuses on the deeds of Jesus. Remember, we said Matthew focused a lot on Jesus' teachings, but Mark focuses on his deeds, specifically Jesus' sacrificial service, his desire to sacrifice and to serve, to give his life and so forth. Uh, Not necessarily, I'm not talking about the cross, of course, that would be the ultimate picture of that leading up to the cross and his public ministry, just how much he was serving and sacrificing as God's sacrificial. Uh, lamb uh, and and suffering servant that Daniel talked about and that this, the the Jews were anticipating the suffering servant. So Mark's going to highlight his human emotions more than than Matthew did. He's going to highlight his limitations in terms of you know limitations that he chose to to have on himself and and so forth. We're going to see the humanness of him all demonstrating this suffering servant. One of the things we will see through Mark. As we go through it is that we're going to see a lot, a lot, the book has a lot of similarities or parallels to, uh, Peter's personality. Uh, it, it, you kind of, once you know that, that Mark is basically going off of Peter's testimony and recording Peter's recollection of things and so forth, it makes a lot of sense because you get to see the fast pace of the gospel. It's very fast. It's only 16 chapters. Everything, a lot of things are condensed. It's the short version. It's kind of like what husbands want their wives to give them. Give me the short version. You know, just bottom line me. You know, uh, just give, I don't need all the details, you know, and sometimes it's reversed. Sometimes the wives are like that and, and, you know, they're hearing the same story over and over again. I won't mention names in, in this church, but, um, you know, the person's telling these stories and they're like, okay, just give me the bottom line. Just want the, 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 the facts and so forth. But we also see that it's, this gospel has a lot of direct, uh, instruction and direct descriptions um, and and so we're going to highlight certain words that we're going to see over and over again that that basically highlights the impact that Mark intends for his words to have on the reader. He uses very specific words that kind of supposed to jar you and supposed to impact you. Unfortunately, my mind goes back to Batman, you know the, the TV series, the POW you know, and bam, you know, it's, I remember looking forward to that. And it just like, it's supposed to add to the the, the, the fight scenes and everything. And this, you're supposed to just feel the the brunt of those punches and all of that. That's kind of the feel. Of course, I have to twist something around from then into this. Of course, that's just my my mind, unfortunately, but, but that's what Mark does. He's describing things in the, in the passage that it's, it's, especially in the original language that's very, very, um, expressive and, and shows action and a fast paced, even though it's shorter, it's describing things going on at a fast, pace we're going to see the word immediately a lot in the in the gospel of mark immediately this happened immediately they got to the other side of the the lake immediately this person was healed immediately over and over again because he's wanting to show just the action of the events that that occurred he's also writing from rome mark is writing from rome to jewish or rather gentile believers and all believers of course but he's He's mainly focusing on the audience that wouldn't be as accustomed to a lot of these things that we saw in Matthew. Matthew was writing to Jews, so he didn't have to translate uh, Aramaic terms like Mark does. He didn't have to explain their their customs as much he didn't Mark Matthew used a lot of Jewish time in terms of describing time, but but uh, Mark doesn't he's descri- describing time related to kind of how Romans kept time and and, and so forth and so. We're going to see these traditions, these Roman traditions and all these things, um, explained or, 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 um, revealed in the gospel of Mark more than we see in other books. So let's start in verse one here. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as it is written in the prophets, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way, your way before you. It's quoting Malachi chapter three, verse one. So even though Mark is not focused on showing Jews the, how uh, messianic the Lord Jesus was, it's still very important for anyone reading the book to know whether they're Jew or Gentile that there's these prophecies that, that God made through the old, in the Old Testament through the prophets related to the, to the Messiah so that when He came, we would receive Him and accept Him. He quotes another one in verse 3. "...the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make His paths straight." any time that a king would be coming there were there were these forerunners that would go before the king and would announce that the king is coming and they would fill the potholes and they would they would fix the roads and all of that they would make, they would put on their best performance you ever had any big wigs come to your to your job you know the the district manager or the vice president of sales or whatever and everybody's cleaning everything that they normally don't clean and they're making it just Perfect for this person. This person comes in for two minutes. He's out, doesn't notice anything. And you're like, what was all that for? You know, and that's happened over and over again at different places in, 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 uh, in our culture. And this is kind of what's happening here. We have John the Baptist coming and making, uh, his, meaning Jesus, his paths straight. He's preparing the people for the Messiah to come there. And so we see Kind of how he does that in verse four. He says, John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. That's how this king wants his paths to be made straight. He wants the people's hearts to be made straight and prepared to receive him as the Messiah so that they would, they would uh, uh, properly appropriate what he had to offer. So he is leading his forerunner that was prophesied in Isaiah. John the Baptist to make the people's hearts straight in the sense of repentance. It's funny when people try to say, well, you know, you can't repent until you're saved. No, these people aren't saved and they're repenting of their sins. And, and so they, they basically what they're saying, I, I have a change of mind. I'm, I'm, I'm turning the other direction. I'm sorry for my sins, but I'm not just sorry. I'm willing to go the other direction. That's what it means. Verse five. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. So they're all, re- they're all responding well. They're hearing about this man that's out there that's calling everybody to repentance and they're responding. It just shows that it was the perfect timing for the Messiah to come. That God knew the people when they heard this, this call for repentance to prepare for the Messiah and, and all of that, that, that they would they would respond appropriately. Can you imagine if the Lord Jesus, if you knew He was coming at three o'clock today? I think there'd be some repenting going on. You know, you just want to make sure, just extra sure. You're refining that there's anything in my heart, anything whatsoever. You're coming, and I want to be as, as right in my heart as I possibly can when you come. But the thing is, we're supposed to be doing that all the time. Because he could come at any moment. So here they have this desire to repent and so forth. They're confessing their sins. Very, very healthy. Verse six. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist. And he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. So he's describing John the Baptist here, but he's also saying, look at I'm pointing people to him and I'm not worthy of even taking the sandal strap and, and undoing it. Now this is a picture of the servants that would be in the home. The lowest servant would take off the guest's sandals and wash their feet and serve them and that was basically the same as when someone comes into your home and you offer them something to drink, would you like something to eat, you try to make them comfortable. It was it was hospitality 101. So he's saying, I'm I'm not even willing, worthy to do that to him. That's how much higher he is than me. He's pointing people to Jesus. And that's what we should be doing with our lives. Pointing people to him. He's the one you need to be thinking about. And unfortunately, there's been a lot of leaders that have pointed people to themselves instead of pointing people to him. And then he adds in verse 8, I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Baptism means immersion. The Catholic Church transliterated, poured a different meaning into it, just carried it over from the Greek and poured their own meaning into it. It means to immerse. That's what it means. It means to immerse. They could have just talked about He will, he will immerse you with the Holy Spirit. It would be, it'd be a synonym for baptism. So we are baptized with the Holy Spirit as we ask Him to fill us. Sometimes He does it sovereignly at the moment of salvation, like with Cornelius. And also like with me. That's what happened with me. But sometimes we have to ask. Like in Luke 11, he talks about if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? But at salvation, we're not asking for the Holy Spirit. We're asking for forgiveness. So there, there can come a time where we have to recognize I don't have power to be a witness for Christ. And that's why he told them to wait and wait in Jerusalem and pray because he was going to baptize them with this, the Holy Spirit. So John... uh, John the Baptist touches on that. Verse 9, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now this is so funny because other Gospels go into so much detail. Where John's saying, I remember I was in a play once where I was John the Baptist. (laughs) That's funny in and of itself. But I was in the baptismal there and I was supposed to baptize Jesus in the play. And they said, you need to be rough about it. You need to be, do it aggressively. I mean, John the Baptist isn't going to just go hold the nose and, boop, you know, he's not, he's going to be like, you know, and do really, so I did that. And I slammed Jesus, wham, as hard as I could in the water, just went poof, all over the wall of the church and everything. And they're like, okay, yeah, that, That's what we kind of said to you, but we didn't realize you were going to slam dunk him (laughs) in the, into the, you know, in the baptismal or whatever. Um, but, you know, from other gospels, we're aware that, that John says, what you be, I'm, I'm going to baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said it's necessary to fulfill all righteousness because it pictured his death and his resurrection. And also we're supposed to follow his example. And so he didn't have any sin, um, to repent of. And that's what John is stumbled by. But that wasn't why He was getting baptized there. He's getting baptized to be an example for us and to to actually give a fore picture or a picture in advance of what was going to happen related to the cross and His resurrection. Verse 10, And immediately, there's our word immediately, and immediately coming up from the water, He saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon Him like a dove. So this... Again, words he said certain words for impact. And in the Greek, that word open is is literally schism or ripping apart. He ripped apart the heavens and the Spirit, he saw, that is Jesus, he saw the heavens ripping apart and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And the dove is always symbolic of the Holy Spirit. G. Campbell Morgan, the great Bible commentator, said the dove is the symbol of infinite gentleness. And it's true. Because any time God calls you to do something, and He would do this with kings, He would do it in the Old Testament, they would anoint you with oil. Now this was done in homes just as a is an act of hospitality. They'd pour oil over your head and, in, and it would refresh you because it was hot. And then you would go around town. and Everyone would know, oh, this guy was loved on and welcomed in a home. His, his hair's all, you know, uh, oily and everything. And, and, and that's kind of the hospitality expression that they had. But, but when they anointed a king with oil, they would do the same thing. They would pour the oil on the head and it would just pour all over him. Perfect picture of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. When you get baptized, water baptized, you come out of the water. Everybody is congratulating you. And you're hugging people and you're getting some of that water onto them. That's the baptism with the Holy Spirit. You're overflowing with the Holy Spirit. That's what He's That's what he's getting at. So here this anointing, this empowerment by the Holy Spirit, this symbolic empowerment and literal empowerment there. He's starting His public ministry. And, and that's one of two things that the Father does in this moment for the Son to see that He's been validated. It's just, it wasn't for Jesus too. It wasn't just for those watching. It's for Jesus too. But also in addition to the, that and the Spirit descending like a dove, we're also told of the second way that the Father validated the Son in verse 11. He says, Then a voice came from heaven, You are My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is a beautiful affirmation from the Father. To, for the Son to hear that meant a lot to Him and those that are around, and so forth. And He says, well pleased. And the verb there is already completed. So you could read it this way. You are My beloved Son in whom I am already well pleased. That's the tense there. Jesus hadn't performed one miracle yet. He hadn't done anything at this point. This is the beginning of His public ministry. Sometimes we wonder, what was Jesus doing before the age of 30? Because 30 was the age where rabbis would would start being rabbis and and your apprenticeship would be over and you would start as whatever you were doing whatever trade you would start at the age of 30 as a journeyman. So what was Jesus doing before that? And I wouldn't be going to movies uh and and getting your theology from that. Uh there's a lot of apocryphal books that talk about him doing these miracles as a boy and all that. Gospel doesn't doesn't uh reveal any of those things. What he was doing is pleasing the father. What he was doing was being a godly man, being a godly boy, being a, a godly adult, and serving. I'm sure he was still serving people and still expressing his heart. He didn't start serving when he became, you know, the 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 rabbi that he was was known as in the culture. He was he was always who he was, and it's beautiful. So he says, "You are my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased." Then verse twelve. There's our word again. Immediately, the the spirit drove him into the wilderness and we're told the spirit there drove him and it's literally uh threw him out because it's two words together and they mean to, to throw out so drove him threw him out kind of like pushed him and led him and so you ask you know why would that happen why would he do this at this time what what's his purpose in bringing him into the wilderness uh to be tempted, we, we see from other accounts. And I believe, of course, it's to prove that he wouldn't sin. That's one. But also I believe there's was some preparation time related to him as well before his public ministry. Hebrews five eight tells us this. He learned, that is Jesus, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And I believe that included these forty days. And and so he's being prepared. God often prepares people privately for what he wants to do them do through them publicly we see that in scripture we see moses we see paul paul was in the wilderness for years before he did anything he was being prepared and poured into and going over scriptures and in his mind and understanding kind of what god would have him do and so forth there's 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 a great need for adequate preparation and we can get in a hurry and despise preparation for what god has for us. First of all, it doesn't mean that we can't be used while we're being prepared. And oftentimes the preparation involves service. But number but number three or two or whatever when I'm on, uh, also we have to recognize that God knows what He's doing. You would think with the Apostle Paul with all of his background, the gifts that he had, how God was going to you know, use him, that God would be in a hurry to get him out there. He wasn't in a hurry at all. It took years of preparation time. Years of seeking the Lord, years of being taught by Jesus, years of having the Word revealed to him and responding and so forth, preparing him. He went years and years and years and years before his first missionary journey. Doesn't mean he didn't preach the gospel. We're told he did that immediately in Damascus after he got saved. But he's, before he started the thing that was going to be his lifelong ministry, he waited and he let God prepare him. There's 12 years between the time God called me to be a pastor and the time I started being an assistant pastor. You can't rush that. You can't hurry it up. God has His purposes for His timing. Verse 13, And He was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to Him. I want to highlight the word "wild." The words wild beasts here. Because at this time in Rome, Nero was persecuting Christians. And and Mark is writing to believers in that area and they're being persecuted big time. They're being put in colosseums and having to fight off lions and fight off wild beasts. So it, it would be a great encouragement to them to read that Jesus was dealing with wild beasts. Of course, I'm not saying He's fighting them off or any of those things, but He still had to deal with them there. And so uh, I think that was a great encouragement to them. That could be very well why Mark includes this there. And the angels ministered to Him. Angels supernaturally ministered to the Lord Jesus during those 40 days, especially afterwards, we're told in other Gospels. Verse 14, Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the Gospel of the Kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now we've seen this marker before. Remember in, in when we looked at the gospel of Matthew, all the gospels, you can get your orientation by three events that happen. The first, and, and it's the main one that we just see, saw here, um, when it says John was put into prison, that's your sign. Anytime you see that in any of the four gospels, when you see John be put into prison, you know that Jesus' public ministry, specifically in Galilee, began. And that's true, all four gospels. The second marker is when he fed the five thousand and they wanted to make him king by force and so forth. That was the beginning of the year of opposition. And then the last marker, which is true, is the Caesarea Philippi, where from that point on, after he said, Who do you say that I am? That's when he started facing towards Jerusalem. Those three points are the same and let you know kind of where everything, you know, where he's at in this public ministry related to the time. In, in in the Gospels. But notice it says in verse uh, 15, the time is fulfilled. Now he's not saying his time is fulfilled where his time had come when he's talking about the cross. We see that in other places where he says my time has not yet come. This is talking about the time where the Messiah comes and preaches the good news that the prophet's Prophesied about. That time is, notice it doesn't say was or will be, is fulfilled. Right at that moment, the kingdom of God is at hand. Notice he tells them, repent and believe in the gospel. It's crazy how many people and teachers say, oh, well, you don't have to preach repentance when it comes to gospel. You just preach the gospel and they accept Christ and then God works in their life and they repent after that. No, Jesus was very fine with saying, you need to repent and receive, uh, believe in The Gospel. In Acts 17, Paul says God has called all men everywhere to repent. All men everywhere to repent. Repentance is part of preparing your heart, just like the the Jewish people were prepared to receive their Messiah when He came the first time, so too when we get ready to receive the free gift of eternal life, what prepares our heart to receive that is repentance. We need to have a change of mind in the direction that we're going and realize the way we've been living is not how God has wanted us to live and we're ready to surrender and receive that free gift. It's not earning the gift, it's just preparing our hearts to properly receive that gift. Verse 16, And as He walked by the Sea of Galilee, He saw Simon and Andrew, His brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow Me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Notice Jesus' priority is people. I'll make you fishers of men. You fish right now for fish, but I'm going to make you fishers of men. You're going to be preaching that Gospel. You're going to be bringing uh, men and women, of course, it's mankind, into the net of salvation and I'm going to clean them. You don't have to clean them, guys. You have to clean your fish right now. It's not fun. I'll clean them up. But I have to have them before I clean them. The famous saying is you can't clean a fish before you catch it. So we have to let God clean people up, but we have to be the ones that go out and put the nets in the water. And so He says, this is what your calling is going to be. Verse 18, they immediately, there's our word again, left their nets and followed Him. When he had gone a little farther from there he saw James the son of Zebedee and John his brother who were also in the boat mending their nets and I've talked about Ephesians chapter 4 where we're told that the leadership in a church equips the saints for the work of ministry that word equips is the same word that's used right here in verse 19 for mending it's putting something in your intended condition putting something in its intended condition these met these nets intended condition And proper condition was that they were usable, that they were functional, that they actually caught fish and fish didn't fall through the cracks. So too, as Christians, the leaders that God has given to the church are called to equip the saints or mend them or put them in their intended condition. So it's all part of God's calling. Verse 20, "...and immediately He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants." and went after Him." I want to make two observations related to these men and God's calling on their lives. First of all, they were just ordinary men. Would you choose fishermen? Would you choose these men? These are the men that were fighting about who's the greatest? How would you like the leadership here to be fighting all the time? Who's the greatest? Would that make you feel comforted? Would that make you feel good? God's calling people that are fi- are going to be fighting on who's the greatest. They're not the most educated men at all. They're not the rid- religious elite. They don't have the great pedigrees. They don't have the background. They don't have they're not the people that the world would look to and say, "Oh, pff, I can totally see God using them." No. These were fishermen. These were just ordinary people. That's supposed to bring comfort to our hearts. It brings comfort to my heart. Cause I'm worse than fishermen. <laughs> At least they have a skill. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's like I don't have anything, and, and and so it's great, greatly comforting me on an ongoing basis. But the second observation I want to make is that they had no idea where they were going. They didn't say, "Whoa, whoa, 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 where are we going? And what are we going to be doing? And how long are we going to be there? When are we coming back?" Totally open ended. And some, in our culture, we can kind of communicate things to people when they're preaching the gospel. Well, we're laying it all out for them. And this is, you know, God's never going to allow you to do this or God's never going to lead you to do that. And we're laying out all these things as if we're negotiating a contract. And it's, there's no contract except yes. <laughs> you know, yes, I'll go. And later on, Peter would say, when, when, when Jesus does say, are you going to leave too? He says, where are we to go? You're the one that has eternal life. The words of eternal life there so these were there's no contract negotiation they just go and that's the wisest decision they had ever made no one ever will go back and look that said yes to god's call and following him and look at the end of their life or be at the end of their life and look at their life and say that was a mistake I should not have surrendered to Him. I should not have given up everything to follow Him. I should not have followed His leading every step of the way. I should not have sacrificed and gave and put other people first. That was a big, the biggest mistake. You know what we'll be saying? We'll be saying, I wish I would have done more of that. I've been with people on their deathbeds. I I hear the regrets. I hear, I wish I would have spent more time with my family. I wish I would have been more of a leader, a spiritual leader in my home. I wish I would have been more available for God using me. I wish I would have spent more time with Him. I feel unprepared to go be with Him right now. I hear those things. And I'm not above saying those things either, just like anybody. So He just wants us to totally surrender and just know that's the best decision and go forward because we will not regret it, church. We will not regret going forward and doing whatever He's called us to do regardless of what it is. Verse 21, Then they went into Capernaum and immediately, you're starting to see that word a few times here? On the Sabbath, He entered the synagogue and taught and they were astonished at His teaching, for He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes." See, they were always quoting the Talmud, their traditions, their commentaries. They were quoting books about the, the law, but never quoting the law itself and Jesus just teaching because He's the one that inspired the, the Word in the first place. And they're just amazed at that. Now there was a man in, the, in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out saying, "'Let us alone.'" What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. See, God doesn't need the devil as a PR or marketing firm. Everything that they said is true. But that God doesn't need the enemy. I mean, there was a point in the book of Acts where this demon-possessed girl was following Paul around and he just finally put up with it as long as he could and just exercised that demon and just, I don't need I don't need the PR. I don't need your help. I don't need the marketing of of the enemy. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? See, they should have been asking, Who is this? Not, What is this? They should have been asking, Who is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirit's and they obey Him. Yes, because He's God. These demonic spirits are going to obey God because God is sovereign over the demonic realm. Everything that's allowed to happen in our lives as believers has to first go through the, sover- the filter of the sovereignty of God. In the book of Job, it's probably the oldest book in the Bible, Satan had to go through God before he could touch Job. So God is ultimately the one that's sovereign and, re- and overseeing our lives. And it's good for us to to be reminded of that. Verse 28, And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. But Simon's wife's mother lay sick with the fever, and they told him about her at once. So he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and she served them. Again, remember, Peter is informing Mark of all these things. This is, this is Peter communicating to Mark what happened and all of this. And I bet this was Peter, one of the best days of his life. Because he's the Messiah has come into his synagogue and done a miracle and done all these things. And then he comes into his house. We do see that Peter was married. So that is the case there. And one thing we do see though is that God doesn't heal the same way every time. We're going to see that over and over and over again. We see him put, have people put, I mean, put mud on their eyes. He, I mean, he does all kinds of different things. We shouldn't be surprised when he works differently through our lives. But he, this time, he he took her by the hand. What a what an act of gentleness! Took her by the hand and lifted her up. And then notice her response in the end of verse thirty-one. And she served them. And I'm not saying she wouldn't have served them anyway but especially in light of the fact that she was healed, she wants to serve. It's a great response. God changes us. He heals us. He touches us. He affects our lives. The result should be service. The result should be caring for other people. She doesn't go on a whole thing about herself and puts her at the center of everything. She starts serving. It's completely fitting. Verse 32, "...at evening when the sun had set, they brought to Him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed." So they waited for the sun to set. They waited for the Sabbath to end because then the Jews, the, the day started at 6 a.m. and ended at 6 p.m. So this is already the next day there. They waited until that Sabbath had ended. And so this whole the Word's getting out. This healer is at Peter's house. And the Word's spreading all through Galilee. They're all coming. And it's verse 33 tells us, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. How would you like the whole city at your door? Sometimes I feel like the whole city is at my door. Uh, you know, people wanting things and wanting us to buy stuff and all of that. But this is literally people coming with needs. And notice in verse 34, then he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. Now in verse 32, we're told they brought to him all who were sick. In verse 33 and 34 there, specifically 34, he says he healed many. Didn't heal, he didn't heal all of them. But in other passages, we do see that He healed all of them. So He's he's sovereign over that. He's sovereign over how He heals, who He heals, when He heals, and so forth. Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, He went out and departed to a solitary place. And there He prayed. And Simon and those who were with Him searched for Him. When they found Him, they said to Him, everyone is looking for You. But He said to them, let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. And he was preaching in their synagogues throughout all Galilee and casting out demons. So first of all, notice that he had risen a long while before daylight to have prayer. There was a sacrifice. His, his body had to sacrifice to be able to have that alone time with the Father. It's a great example for us. So often we're not willing to make sacrifices to have that alone time with Him. And that alone time can look a lot of different ways. It doesn't have to look exactly the same as other people that we're familiar with that have had that time and so forth. He'll lead us related to that. But we do have to be willing to sacrifice sometimes sleep and other things to have that time with Him and that communion with Him. And and the Holy Spirit really wants us to see here that He spent that time in prayer before what happened, happened there in verses um, 36 through 39. It's very important for us to see this because Jesus is getting his quote unquote marching orders from the Father. He's getting its very specific instructions and he's praying. And, and I, I love the fact, now again, this, this is coming from Peter himself to Mark. So, Simon's explaining this, I mean, Peter's explaining this to Mark, and Mark's writing it down, and, and he, and it says, when they found him, they searched for him, and it literally means they hunted him down. That's literally what it says there in the original language. And he says, they said, they found him, they, everyone is looking for you. Everyone's looking for you. This is just, you could just imagine Peter. Jesus, there's momentum. They're wanting us to be here. There's more and more people coming. Everybody's looking for you. And the whole, the kind of the, the underlying message is, it's kind of implicit there. Basically, people, people's demands should be moving you. What are you kind of being here for? I mean, everybody's looking for you. There's needs. I don't know if you noticed Jesus, but there's needs. You know, everybody's looking for you. We, where, what are you doing? Or, or why aren't you there? Or we need to hurry up. Whatever the underlying message was. But notice Jesus has a completely different um, response than what they would expect in verse 38. Let us go into the next towns that I am and preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. Do you think this was expected, an expected response? Can you imagine the disciples? What? The next towns? We don't know what's going to happen in the next towns. Maybe people won't be interested in you. Maybe they won't desire you. Maybe they won't uh, receive you like they're receiving Why? Why mess a good thing up? We have momentum. You know, the, the church planting gurus have something they call critical mass. Where once you get to a certain number, and they define that number of course, then things are just going to start exploding and all of that. And so you need to make sure that you get to that point and these are the steps you need to do to get to this point and all of that. All of that speaks of man's thinking and man's approaches and, and not the result of getting up a long while before daylight and going to a solitary place and praying and hearing what the Holy Spirit uniquely says for you and for us and do what He says to do because it won't make sense and he doesn't look at natural things like momentum and all these things and we have to capture it and we need to be responding to all these needs. See, that's the big lesson from this passage. And I remember hearing this a long time ago and it really, really helped me is that we can have knee jerk reactions to needs and needs should move us in the sense of compassion. But as it's been said, then, you know, the need does not constitute a call. We should not merely be serving out of need. We should be serving out of calling. There's always going to be needs. Do you think Jesus didn't care about those additional people that were coming to Capernaum? He did care about them. But he also cared about the people that he was supposed to go to that the Father told him in prayer to go to. And he needed to be obedient to what the Father said much to the consternation or the confusion of the other people or di- potential disapproval of the other people. And it didn't make sense to them because we have momentum. These things are happening. It's like, it doesn't matter what anyone expects or what's happening. What matters is what the Father just told me if I can ten minutes ago, Peter. What He told us to do. What He told us to, to respond to. He knows the needs and the hearts of the people that we have yet to come to. And He wants us to do that. So the lesson for us is, is to not just do the obvious thing. The obvious thing is to sometimes do the thing that the Father doesn't want us to do that makes complete sense though in the natural. That it, People around us, family, friends, the world, whoever says that's that's what you need to do. That makes sense. That's common sense. Common sense sometimes goes against the biblical sense or the Father's clear leading and we need to listen to what He says. See, there's a reason why Jesus healed differently. He didn't have to. It's not like He ran out of options. Oh, I, you know, I, I got to heal differently because I can't keep healing the same way over and over again. That's not what the problem was. There was no problem. He modeled for us that God works differently. And the only way that we're going to work differently and minister differently is being tapped into Him and tuned into Him. And sometimes those things that He leads us to do are going to be different than what other people expect. Just like the disciples could be thrown and were thrown by the different ways that the Lord Jesus healed and taught and and did the things that He did. So it requires us to be flexible with What what the Holy Spirit's speaking to us and be willing to go to Him in prayer and do what He says to do, not necessarily the obvious thing. The obvious thing may be what He says for us to do, but many times it's not. It doesn't make any sense to people that, you know, remember when Jesus talked about in John chapter 3 that those that are born of the Spirit are like the wind. With the wind, you can't tell where it's coming from, where it's going. He said, so are those that are born of the Spirit. We are supposed to be unpredictable from those that are around us. Not for the sense of being unpredictable, but because if we're led by the Holy Spirit, we're gonna be doing things that sometimes don't make any sense at all. You think it made sense to people around Noah? Well, you're building an ark? It's never rained before. <laughs> Whatever you're describing as rain, we've never experienced that. But you're building this massive ark. What if what if the generals, what if they said to Joshua, God told you what? We're gonna march around the city seven times and blow a horn? That's no strategy we've ever used before. Uh, Gideon's, you know, getting ready to fight, and God's el- eliminating troops. And he's already outnumbered. He's el- eliminating troops makes no sense at all. That's the instructions that he got, though. There are so many instructions that make absolutely no sense whatsoever to anybody else, even ourselves. But God says, "This is what I want you to do." And because when He does something supernatural, as a result of that, who gets the glory? It's Him, because they know that's ridiculous plan in the in the natural. There's no way that you would ever come up with that. That had to be God. Why plant a church in the beginning of the Great Recession? Why do it at the beginning of the summer slump where people are going on vacation? All these things He led us to do that made no sense, but He knew what He was doing. And God demonstrated He's not limited by recessions or the summer slump or any of these other things. He And so that way He gets glory. Very important message. Verse 40, Now a leper came to Him, Imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand, and touched him, and said to him, I am willing be cleansed. Quickly picture the scene here. Remember, lepers could not just be around people. They had to yell unclean when they were so close to people without leprosy. They were in lepros or leprosy camps for that reason. So he's already violating that, coming that close. We see Jesus' heart there in verse 41. He was moved with compassion. The heart that He wants to produce in our lives. And we see people that are in need, of course. And then we're told that He touched him. He didn't have to touch him. Jesus could have said, you're healed. You didn't have to touch him. But how long had it been since that man had been touched? And the first person that was going to do it was God. God was going to touch him. I wish I could see that touch. I wish I could have seen that that grab of his shoulder or his arm around him or whatever. And, and I wish I could have seen that because there's so much of God's heart behind that touch there. We could just pass over it. But He touched him. He said, yeah, I am willing. Be cleansed. And so He did it. As soon as He had spoken, immediately their leprosy left Him and He was cleansed. And He strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. There's very specific instructions in the law of what you're supposed to do if you were cleansed of leprosy and you were supposed to go show yourself to the priest and there was a whole ritual and so forth. So it's awesome that God put in the law this whole thing that who else had done that? When did that ever happen? They'd never seen that before. No Jew had come back and said, This is what needs to happen because of the law. I was healed of leprosy and so forth. So God wanted them to fulfill that part of the law. But notice at the end of verse 44, he says, As a testimony to them. That's talking about the priests. Jesus is trying to reach the priests. He's trying to reach them. I mean, can you imagine the conversation? Leper comes, I'm, and he knows. The priests know who the lepers were. And i am been cleansed by this man. Really? And yeah, I, look, I mean, inspect me. Inspect them and all that. Yep, you're clean. We got to do this thing in the law that, that, that Moses prescribed that we've never heard anyone having to, we've never done it before. Wow. And the, the whole thinking process is supposed to be the Messiah must be here. The Messiah must be here. That's what was intended to happen. And many of the priests came to Christ. So God's trying to reach the priests through this. Verse forty five. However, he went out, he didn't obey. <laughs> he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter, so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city, but was outside in deserted places, and they came to him from every direction. This this cleansed leper didn't care about anything but just letting people know what happened to him. Leprosy was horrific, was horrible, and it was I mean, just you suffered greatly. We don't have time to get into all that you go through with leprosy, but it's, it's a horrible condition. And he was freed, and he wanted to proclaim it freely. It's a, it's a model kind of what God's called us to do with the Gospel. We've been forgiven. He wants us to go and proclaim it freely, openly, not be ashamed, and be bold with our proclamation of what He's done in our life. And, and the result will be the same result here. And they came to Him from every direction. If we preach the Gospel and if we're bold with that Gospel, people will hear about it. And people will want to come to Christ. They'll hear that lives are being changed, and it'll cause a curiosity. And it'll be salt, and they'll, it'll create a thirst. And they'll they'll want to hear the truth. They'll want to hear uh, what what is changing lives. We've heard this thing that's going on at that weird church. <laughs> you know what's going on there? Uh, it seems like lives are changing. There's things that we've never heard happen there. And and God will save many people. And so that's what we're praying for us. So is fame's going to increase here as we make our way through? This book, it's a beautiful life. So many things here that we didn't see in Matthew, different angles, different perspectives. I'm really looking forward to what he has for us related to the rest of it. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this chapter. Use every verse, every part of every verse in our lives, Lord, as we prepare our hearts now to respond to what you've spoken to us about during this worship time. We pray, Lord, that it would bless your heart, Lord. Help us to. Make all the things and all the adjustments and the repent and all these things uh, that You want us to do right now individually that You've been speaking to us about right now by Your Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.